judges, doctors, nurses, engineers, president, what have you. It's important to have deaf role models for deaf youth in the community. People they can look up to in order to realize, I can do that too. Something I noticed was that most of the group that was sworn in were women, and a significant portion were women of color. Now, how does this compare with other SCOTUS lawyers? I noticed that right away as well, and it was incredible. Most of the SCOTUS courtroom was comprised of white men, so it really highlighted how much we have overcome to be where we are today. Let's talk about your experience. How did you feel being sworn in and experiencing this recognition? It was an incredible feeling. It was a day I will never forget. It was amazing to be part of such a historic moment. I especially had goosebumps when Chief Justice Roberts signed to us from the bench in quite a historic moment. I didn't expect it and immediately smiled at him. That visible moment highlighted recognition of our culture, our community, our language. It was beautiful and truly special. Currently, the Supreme Court courtroom reporter provides transcripts of oral arguments on their website the same day an argument is heard by the court. What improvements would you like to see in terms of accessibility and visibility of the court's activities? I'd like to see consistent provision of ASL interpreters in CART, not just for historic moments like these, but also in the day-to-day of SCOTUS proceedings. It's key for equal, full access to what's occurring inside the courtroom. As you mentioned, they already provide same-day transcripts, which is generated from real-time captioning. All they'd have to do is allow simultaneous access to this real-time captioning for deaf and hard-of-hearing people who are there. And the provision of ASL interpreters would allow for full, equal access to what's being said in real time in the courtroom. Equal access to the same information that hearing people get. It's as simple as that. That's just about everything I have. Are there any other remarks or comments that you want to share with our viewers and listeners? Thank you so much for highlighting this momentous event on your radio show and for your interest in the meaning behind all of this. Thank you. I hope we have shown others that anything is possible. Thanks. That was Zainab al policy counsel for the National Association of the Deaf. This interview took place last year and was originally recorded in American Sign Language with voiceover by Geraldine Asu. To listen to the podcast of this interview or read the transcript or even watch the sign language video, check out intersectionsradio.wordpress.com. Visit the same website for previous episodes of this podcast and join the Facebook community at facebook.com slash intersectionsradio. You're listening to Intersections Radio. I'm Sari Gametha. Thanks for listening. You're listening to KXRY Portland at 107.1 and 91.1 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. X-Ray FM would like listeners to know about Free Geek, a Portland-based nonprofit committed to transforming used technology into opportunity, education, and community. As an official Oregon eCycles drop site, Free Geek teaches volunteers how to refurbish used technology, including computers, tablets, TVs, smartphones, and more. These are then sold in Free Geek's electronic thrift shop to support hardware grants to thousands of nonprofits, schools, and community change organizations. Find out more at freegeek.org or 503-232-9350. X-Ray. You're listening to X-Ray in the morning. I'm Jefferson Smith. Representative Chris Gorsuch is joining us. There's just about a month left in legislative session. We'll see when it actually ends and if special sessions will be necessary. Here to talk to us is Representative Chris Gorsuch. How are you doing, sir? 
I'm doing well. How are you, Jefferson? I am well. So House Bill 2004, I want to get straight to it. The, the housing bill, is that thing going to happen? The rent control portion got pulled out of it in the Senate. I, he, I still hear that Rod Monroe uh, is, is being grumpy and won't even talk about the subject. What's happening? Well, yeah, that, you know, 2004 is an extremely important bill. And as it was originally crafted, it was going to allow local control for cities to decide whether they wanted to do um, what they call rent stabilization or not. It certainly wasn't a mandate. Unfortunately, after we passed it in the House, um, it did go over to the Senate and it has gotten um, jammed up. And so the, um, the rent stabilization piece has been pulled out, but we still hope to get um, the, um, the rest of the bill, at least the part that does um, deal with no cause evictions. Um, but you're right, there are some folks in the Senate who are continuing to uh, resist the bill. And as far as I know, it is currently in Senate rules. So the bill is in Senate rules. You don't, you don't have the vote count, but, and we're going to actually be talking to Rod Monroe tomorrow. I suspect the subject may come up. Uh, with, when, it, when they took out the rent stabilization, to use your term, provision, my assumption is they took it out so it would be smooth sailing. Is that not the case? Does it not seem like smooth sailing? Well, I, I think that's true. Um, it was, I believe, in um, uh, Senator Gelser's committee, and I think, as you well know, there are lots of things that go on where if uh, a portion of a bill doesn't seem to work enough to get the votes you need, then um, some sections are removed to try and, as you say, make it uh, more smooth sailing. Um, and I thought that was what was going to happen here, but unfortunately, that that does not seem to be the case. Yeah. And yeah. while you know, I, my office has reached out to Senator Monroe um, as one of the kind of the key people involved in in this what you might call a roadblock. Um, so far, um, we haven't been able to to change his his opinion of things. And your district is immediately adjacent to his. Yes, you're just to the east of Rod. I think that's right. Um, he is down more towards um, where he lives, the Mount to the Scott South. area, and I'm yeah. out in East County. Yeah, but I think his district goes to the. I mean, he he is the senator also for you know all, all the way up to the river. I think. Uh, well, uh, Lori Montes Anderson is my senator. Right, right, right. No, but I just yeah. well, anyway, I, your guys' district, I'm pretty sure touch uh, touch yeah. immediately. When and I can imagine two things happening. I'll get a little bit into the legislative tactical weeds just for a moment. Mm-hmm. That one was that Sarah Gelser needed to get do this amendment to get it out of committee, right? That it right. just wasn't go out of committee otherwise. The other was well, it's just to make sure that the thing that got out of committee was going to pass on the floor. Did you exactly. have an? Uh, do you have an understand? And I was thinking it was the latter that she was. Oh, she had the votes in the committee, but needed to make it ready for the floor. Do you think she needed to make this change just not to get bottled up in committee? Well, I, yeah, I think if we hadn't made the change, or she hadn't made that change, that it would have probably uh, died in committee. Yeah. So what's the biggest thing that people should know now? You've been working on this for a while. Yeah. Uh, that that we people, I think, have an understanding of how much uh, of what's happening with housing costs mm-hmm. in, our, in our community. But what's the most important thing you want to make sure people know? I think the main thing is that uh, people reach out to their senators, and uh, certainly I would encourage them uh, to contact them if, uh, you know, hopefully they feel strongly about this bill and try and convince, uh, especially people like Senator Monroe, that this is something that's very important and we want it to go forward. Um, you know, people's input makes a difference. Yeah. What's justice reinvestment? You're working on it. Uh, justice reinvestment. This is the, um, 
an, a long-term thing that is designed to um, use uh, evidence-based practices to basically make our system work better and work uh, in, in a more um, um, you know, smart and less expensive sort of way. All right. So House Bill, what is it, 3242? Oh, yes. Is, is this a bill you're working on? Yeah, in fact, uh, it finally uh, came back to the <laughs> to the House floor yesterday, and uh, we managed to, uh, I think it was unanimous, to concur. So now it'll go to the governor. Um, this is a bill that, that I came up with, um, with the help, obviously, of, of legislative counsel. And the idea here is to try and make the system as uh, transparent and also as um, um, basically... Uh, work the same for both uh, adults and juveniles that have been uh, charged with felony crimes. Senate Bill 496 requiring grand jury proceedings to be Mm -hmm. recorded. We're going over, I know the NAACP is in the press about their agenda, which looks to me to be, you know, come pretty close to alignment with the progressive agenda generally. And one of those is about grand jury proceedings being recorded. Do you have a view on that, Bill? Well, you know, I, uh, I'll probably not be very popular with many of my law enforcement friends, but I think that um, that's a good bill, and I would like to see it pass. What, what is happening, in your view, in the legislature now, from a, from a big-picture perspective, as you look down on this session, is a remove maybe when you're – do you commute every day, or do you stay down there, there during the session? No, I, I commute because I'm, I'm still teaching as well. So You should um, tell listeners where you teach. Uh, I'm at uh, Mount Hood Community College full-time and at Portland State part-time. It's a busy day. Yes. Yes, it is. When you have a chance to reflect, what do you think are the best dynamics right now that are happening in the legislature, and what are the worst dynamics that are happening right now? Well, I'll tell you, uh, as you probably remember, the best dynamic is that um, there's a lot of um, connection and friendship across the aisle, Republicans and Democrats uh, we often get along quite well, and even when we're voting, if um, if you take into account just the overall total of bills, probably 90, 95% of the bills we pretty much agree on. Um, the problem, of course, is that we have some major roadblocks. One of those has to do with um, taxes, and um, since we need in the House uh, 36 to be able to do any tax um, changes, and we have 35, it has become a very serious um, roadblock. Do you think we're going to get to a place where there are 36 votes for revenue? That right now there's been some discussion. Nobody's uttered the words grand bargain because the last time that was uttered, mm. it wasn't very grand and it didn't ultimate, ultimately amount to much of a bargain. Very true. But when, but there has at least been some uh, scuttlebutt about maybe something on PERS, maybe something about health care costs, mm-hmm. and maybe something about revenue. What's, the, what's your current update and what's your prediction? Well, I would tell you that uh, I know that uh, leadership is – is working very hard on um, the, uh, the the revenue side of it and also on the transportation side. Um, as for PERS, um, I'm a very s- strong supporter of unions, and, and quite frankly, I have to say that um, if the federal government had made union um, contracts uh, whole like they did the banks, we wouldn't have this problem. Um, it's important to realize that the union members did not cause the economy to crash, therefore, to, you know, to see the loss in 
the amount of money that they had set aside in their pensions. That said, um, the current plan that I've seen looks to me, and I haven't made a decision yet on this, but it looks to me like what we're really doing is um, taking another shot at uh, current employees, the uh, observed folks, what I think of as Tier 3, and uh, and I don't know that that's really going to help the overall problem, which is the large um, you know the large debt that we have for PERS. So I'm not sure that current plan is is really going to do what it needs to do. I'm encouraged that the governor is considering you know some ideas about how to buy down that unfunded liability. Um, on the other hand, I wouldn't be in favor of some of the the proposals that have been floated. For instance, like selling TriMet. Um, yeah, and there's a few things that I mean. I, in review, we cover this subject, but I want to make not everybody listens mm-hmm. to you know every moment of every show. So just to connect some of these dots, it's if you de- from what I understand, my information coming from the North Star Civic Foundation, uh, if you do everything on PERS, every single thing to reform PERS that the most anti-public employee advocate would want to do, it would address about 20% of the budget problem if you did every single thing. And doing every single thing is not only unlikely, but also likely to be unconstitutional. The the courts wouldn't stand it up. So if you do some of it, you save a little bit. What that illustrates is that this is not merely a PERS problem. There's a structural budget problem, which very much includes and maybe mostly includes a revenue problem it does however also to do with health care costs what is right. ha- help people explain uh, understand that with health care costs well, going way up we've got generous health uh, health benefits for public workers and we got to pay for them yeah well yeah and, but i want to go back to um that previous comment that Please. you made the 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 question that i always have is um when we look right now at the concern that we have for people being forced off medicaid so these are the people that were brought in um several hundred I think it was like 300,000 or 350,000 people that could be knocked off the rolls because of the changes. Um, We look at that and we go, okay, that's a serious problem. We need to solve it. And those things are happening through no fault of those those folks, uh, you know, own actions. But when we look at PERS, we go, ooh, terrible. This is, this is something that is undeserving. And we we should just look at it the same way. It's a budget issue that we need to solve, yeah. and and take away some of the, you know, quite frankly, some of my uh, colleagues on the other side of the fence um, have a bad habit of somewhat denigrating public employees. Yeah. And you know, these folks those work greedy, very hard. Those greedy teachers. I know. I and I'm one of those. So. <laughs> Yeah, you're you're part of the problem. There Teaching it is. Kids expecting to get paid for it and then have to be able to retire someday. And, you know, I've looked at some things recently which shows that um, although, you know, some people are saying that we're getting more and more expensive, um, I looked at a, I can't remember now, I hate to quote something, I don't remember the source, but um, it put us in the, kind of in the middle in terms of states, in terms of overall compensation, health care, and all of that. So uh, it all really depends upon what source you're pulling, and hopefully you're pulling an accurate source for that. Anything we can do on, or anything that should be done on the health care cost front? Well, it, I am not um, involved in those discussions, but I do understand that uh, there there may be a way forward where we can keep those folks um, all on the rolls, and I think that's extremely important. Um, the last thing we want to do is say, oh, okay, well, you had health care for two years, now we're going to cut it. That, 
that doesn't work very well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the one thing that, uh, Jefferson, that gets thrown around, too, is this question of cost containment. You may have heard that term. Um, and cost containment usually involves doing something with public employees. I, I have a different view of that. Yeah, it generally means cutting some benefits for public employees. Is usually right. What I mean. Now, I have a different view of that, and that is we ought to have, my bias now, um, my opinion, but we ought to have a standing committee that goes through methodically and looks at every program the state offers and evaluates it and decides, is this program doing what it's intended? Is this program a good program but too costly? Um, a not so good program. Yeah, and and that's and that is a legitimate that is a legitimate argument. The response that would come from the cost containment advocates would be our problem is not merely the programs, it's that each program is too expensive per person because our benefit packages are so expensive. And so if you only deal with it program by program, you end up saying, Well, maybe what we'll do is get rid of certain programs within schools. We won't have shop classes because we can't afford those teachers. But what they're saying is no, we still want the shop teacher. We just want their retirement to be a little bit less generous, that we want their health care benefits to be a little less generous. Uh, and and what they're forgetting is that tier one was the top of the line, tier two was a step down, tier three or opserve is definitely a vast reduction. So yeah. um, it is it's not the same across the board. The no, other thing in, I in, in the is, in the per so I, I I benefited from PERS for four years. I believe seventy three hundred dollars is in my PERS account. Oh, there you go. It's not a lot of dough, right? It's, no, not, it's certainly it's not, not. It's not a retirement fund. So the other thing, though, that I would point out is we uh, if, think about higher ed. We have um, a great need in this state for higher ed, and yet we also allow universities to compete in the same market. Yeah. I mean, you look at Portland State, which is, uh, you know, I, w- I went to Portland State. I also went to the U of O. But Portland State is um, more than capable of delivering the services we need, and yet Oregon and Oregon State have a presence there. Yeah. What? Why? Let me ask, uh, what's your percentage chance that a revenue plan for more than $500 million, and I'm not talking about a transportation package, yeah. uh, gets passed? And, and by the way, would you support a transportation package even if revenue doesn't happen, even if we don't do anything with corporate taxes, but asking people to pay more at the gas pump so we can buy three big highway interchanges for a billion dollars? Well, I do support uh, well, and there are other things in the transportation package, too. I do support uh, the transportation package, and I don't make the linkage between that and revenue. You th- what's your percentage chance that a revenue package gets done? <sighs> right now, I think it's still a possibility, um, but I'd say maybe 60-40. Chris Gorsuch, thanks so much for joining us, Representative. Oh, thank you for having me, sir. Are you, in Sa- are you in Salem now, or are you on your way down? No, I'm getting ready to go now. All right. Have a safe travel. Take care. You listen to X-Ray. In just a moment, talk media news. want to say thanks to Beth Ernest and Associates Real Estate. Beth's team of brokers have been serving the Portland area for over 22 years, specializing in residential real estate. Lots of land. More at BethErnest.com. Michael Lesker, good morning. Is that your favorite song, the song we were just playing? I didn't hear it. Well, if you had heard it, it would have been your favorite song. What Michael, song is that? This, I don't know. It's not that good a song. Michael Lesker from Talk Media News, TalkMediaNews.com. What's going on today? 
let me ask you if you saw what happened yesterday with the president's cabinet meeting. Yeah, it seemed like everybody was in a good mood. They were all really honored to be there. They were very complimentary of the president. I assume that what happened after I watched was deep discussions about how we break down the silos along governmental agencies to make sure the objectives of one bureau, one bureaucracy are serving the objectives of another, and that overall the people's business is getting done in a 21st century worthy way, that we're revamping and improving the system by which we govern ourselves to match a new century and that the inspiration was not only in the personhood of Donald Trump but in the work that could be done for the benefit of the people. I assume that happened, yes? You are a dreamer, aren't you? By predilection. I, I thought I was watching something out of North Korea, uh, perhaps a hostage video. One after another, these cabinet members praising the president, calling it the greatest privilege of their lives to serve him, uh, the, the blessing of their lives, and Donald Trump sat there nodding agreement, and um, and then had the nerve to compare himself to Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, he he called himself one of the most productive presidents in American history. Maybe Roosevelt came a close second, uh, and said that he had led a record-setting pace of accomplishment and. Um, and a bill passing, and so he was. He, he well, really, uh, he really trumpeted uh, the, all the legislative accomplishments they've had. Well, they have not had a single major legislative accomplishment. Don't what tell them that, had, though, Michael. To, Michael, don't, don't remind them. Then they'll start doing it. That that's true. That's the that's the saving grace. They've they've had big success in naming post offices and stuff like that, but it was ironic that. Uh, at the same time he was proclaiming all these legislative successes uh, that um, another appeals court was shooting down the travel ban yesterday. That's How many courts is that now? Four that have shot down the so-called Muslim travel ban? I think you might be right. I think it might be four. And, and um, when you think about that, uh, when you think about um, health care legislation, when you think about his tax proposal, when you think about the Mexican wall... Um, he has not had any successes that he was so adamant about during the campaign and thereafter. All these things were going to happen on day one, remember? Um, and uh, for him to sit there now and invoke the name of Franklin Roosevelt and compare himself uh, after he has had uh, all of these fools uh, in his cabinet with the most obsequious fawning this side of North Korea is just takes your breath away. Well, in his defense, it was their first meeting. And so in their get to know you, a loyalty pledge was what they would expect they needed to do so they get to keep their jobs for a little longer. Uh, and in his defense, I have nothing else to say. I, I And I think you the last thing you said was meant ironically. That I have nothing else to say? Or that, that, or that, that they needed to give their loyalty pledge? Yes. Yeah. I, I know you don't believe that. Unfortunately. No, I, I, I believe that what I said is accurate oh that, that he needs it yeah i that, think that he is such a needy guy and and they understand that on some level and he is uh, wrapped in his neediness now uh, to the point where we have one of his old friends um uh, christopher ruddy the chief executive of newsmax media who was at the white house yesterday and he left there and he went to pbs and he told the pbs news hour that Donald Trump is now considering whether to fire 
Robert Mueller, the special counsel, looking into the possible uh, ties between Trump and uh, his circle and, and Russian agents. The White House denies it, but of course they had uh, Newt Gingrich yesterday, after saying what a great guy Mueller was a week or two ago, did a 180 yesterday and said, this guy is dangerous, get him out of there. And um, and so we now have uh, Ruddy saying Trump is weighing his options on um, on Robert Mueller. What's your take? I could interpret those one of two ways. One is that because there is no health care bill, although there is a health care bill, nobody gets to see it. And because we are spoon-fed media by the administration information and we decide to treat as news what we learn about and it's harder to find out what isn't readily before us, that this was an interesting news story because somebody who's a friend of Trump said something and a couple other people who are friends of Trump tweeted something and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, you might fire Mueller. And it really is just, I don't know, not really a story. The well, other possibility, more- the other possibility, hold on just for a second. The other possibility is that it's a trial balloon, that right. it, they, they sort of float it to see what the reaction might be, to see if they could get away with it, not among mainstream media types who they know wouldn't like it, but among Republican allies. How do you take it? Sort of accidental conjecture that doesn't matter or, or something closer to a trial balloon? Well, I, I agree with you that, that it might very well be a trial balloon. Um, in that, um, you know, it's one of a series of distractions that we get from this White House, except that um, uh, Ruddy has uh, has now sent out a second uh, tweet um, reiterating what he said and, and sort of pushing back against uh, Sean Spicer, who denied that, uh, that they were actually thinking about it. Mm. That and the fact that it makes it a little bit more awkward uh, this afternoon, when uh, Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, goes up to Capitol Hill and he's got to answer questions, and this will be one more question that he's going to be asked. If Donald Trump were to go to him, even though he's recused himself, uh, or to Rod Rosenstein and said, I need you to fire um, Bob Mueller, what would they do? Um, this is already going to be awkward enough for Sessions, but if um, if Trump were to say to him or to Rosenstein, um, I need you to, to get rid of this guy, it will harken back, as you know, to Richard Nixon when he went to his attorney general, Elliot Richardson, and said, I want you to fire Archibald Cox, the special counsel during Watergate, and as much as anything that said to the nation, Richard Nixon is hiding something. And, um, you know, that was um, a major blow, you know, the so-called Saturday Night Massacre. And uh, I think people would be comparing that uh, very directly. And the reason I think it's uh, more than one reason, a reason I think it's a legitimate news story is that I wouldn't put it past the president. I could absolutely imagine him thinking about it. I'd kind of be surprised if he hadn't thought about it, but saying, okay, well, if it looks like this guy might get at all close, maybe I want to fire him before he gets really close, and that having the discussion prior, so that when it happens, there is the kind of voter backlash that I believe will be the only kind of accountability. I don't think that Republicans will hold Republicans accountable in a meaningful way, but maybe at the ballot box, a, a landslide sweep in congressional races would at least change, and more than maybe, would at 
least change the tenor and uh, and operations of hearings in Congress. I want to ask you about health care, because the fact that it is not news, the fact that there is no news about it, to me, means it's big news. What do we know, if anything, about health care? And or how much should we care that we don't know very much at all? We should care a lot. And Mitch McConnell is steering this, and he is hoping that um, if he can keep it out of the news as long as possible, he can work behind the scenes to get something that the Republicans have been trying for seven or eight years now to get done, and that is to reach common ground among themselves. And uh, it's ironic because this is the party that said the Obama people didn't give them enough time to consider uh, the Democrats' health care proposal um, that they would now try to uh, to uh, to launch a kind of a sneak attack, uh, giving the public no time to digest this before it's launched on us. And um, you may be right that 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 it is that it takes on uh, added weight, added importance because they are doing it where no one can see what it is they're doing. And this is my lobbying. And my lobbying to you and all the folks in the broader news media and to be telling every other news media person, when they try to make it not news so they can do what you said, a sneak attack, I'll take that term, that sneaking a tax giveaway for rich people, calling it a health care bill, and sneaking the removal of health benefits for millions of Americans, that that is that is of enormous gravity. That is more important than Jeff Sessions' testimony today. I, the only thing I'd be surprised about today is, well, I don't know. I, I don't expect to be surprised by much. He'll be asked about why didn't he tell us stuff before, and I do I expect him to be that forthcoming about something that doesn't serve his interests? No, I don't expect that. It seems to me that every time that folks are inviting pundits to talk about stuff, rather than just talking about the thing that the White House said last, it was tweeted last, we've got to be talking about health care every single day. And it makes me also want to ask you, right now, what is the stance of Democrats? Because there is at least some inter- internal debate, as I understand it, about whether Democrats should engage in a nuclear option, not in terms of the filibuster, but in terms of shutting down operations of the U.S. Senate until there are real hearings, a real process around health care. And some, they would call themselves moderate members of the Democratic caucus in the U.S. Senate saying, no, we want to don't want to do that. 